Okay, hello. Hello. We made it into March. This is technically March's episode, even though it won't be out by March. Well, who knows? This might be <laughs> just going out at the very last minute. Let's do it. Let's, through. let's just, you know, put it out as soon as as soon as possible on like the last minute of March. And we will happily just end March forever and it will never come back because what a month. Oh my god, this entire month has just been I usually like March. My birthday's so in March. I know. <laughs> like, Happy belated. Thank you. You're welcome. I usually enjoy it. And this month has just been wild. Absolutely bananas. Um, so. so, and but obviously. I hope, everybody, I hope everybody's staying safe if you're listening. Yes, absolutely. Welcome to Herlock Files. Hello. Hello. Um, it is our true crime and gaming podcast. I was looking for another word, but <laughs> chit chat show of two awesome ladies who like to combine the stories of true crime and how they relate to all of our all of our pop culture and and media consumption obsessions. Pop culture, that was the word I was looking that's for. That's the word. There we go. Yeah. I kept trying to say pop media and I was like that's not right. I I, I hope pop media is a thing because that's snazzy. Right? We should make it a thing. Pop media. Welcome to our true crime pop media podcast. <laughs> I like it. I like it already. Um, but yeah, hopefully we we put out our episodes. If you're new here, we put out our episodes monthly. Um, so mm -hmm. we do one episode a month. And so this one is our March episode um, that we are potentially putting out on the very last day of March. If not. Taking it out. If not April Fool's, it's still March. Um, <laughs> but just for us. That's the only acceptable April Fool's joke. Everything else is canceled. <laughs> Everything, <yeah. laughs> Everything else. Um, so let me also double check one thing here. For sure. Oh, no, that's good. All right. So we decided this month mm -hmm. to do some unsolved crimes. Mm -hmm. um, back on... I don't even remember what episode number it was because I cannot count. <laughs> um, we did our favorite kind of, our favorite crimes. Um, mm -hmm. What kind of got us into true crime to begin with. And, I think um, that was number three. I think so too. Yeah, I think that was episode three. That was the December one. Yeah, and at the time I had talked about the fact that you know, I picked something that got me into true crime, not necessarily mm -hmm. my one crime story that I keep returning to that, like, always draws me back, that always intrigues me, that always makes me want to, like, read more about it and research more. Um, uh -huh. So I kind of picked the story that got me into it, but not necessarily, like, fuels my current murderino obsession. Mm -hmm. So I thought Your sleuthiness. it was my sleuthiness, exactly. Yeah. So I thought for this episode, it might be fun for me to tell the story of that that case that gets me going back every time. Um, and to do that, I thought a good theme would be unsolved mysteries because this one is a cold case. It's still unsolved. It's still ongoing. Um, in fact, I will talk about this. The last update was just last month. <gasps> no way. Oh, yes. 
Ooh, I love it. Yeah, mine mine didn't hit. Mine uh, also an unsolved uh, mystery, a, a slew of, of craziness. Um, also is unsolved, and the most recent update that they had was in 2017. So, so. still recent. Still, still semi-recent. Um, also, the article kind of kind of went in a weird direction, but at the same time, like, yeah, I'm in it. I'm I want to hear more. The dudes, the dudes, eighty six. Let's let's come on. Like, <laughs> let's, let's let's solve this. this. <laughs> come on, <laughs> a little faster, please. Oh my gosh. Fair. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, last month, Yeba went first. Yes. While discussing. Nancy Drew. So if you have all of our Nancy Drew stuff, that was a doozy <laughs> of an episode. And um, that's why we're also going back into murder because you have been neglected. Yeah, we have not. We have not gone down the true crime route. We went down the sensation route uh, uh, last month, but this month we're definitely we're gonna go. We're gonna go all the way in. And trust me, mine goes all ho, 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 the way in. Yeah, mine um, goes very mm. in on murdery things. Yes, not same. in a fun way, but nope. like. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the fields, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to what true crime really is. I know this yes. this episode is definitely going to be more focused on on our true crime side of things. Yes. For sure. For sure. Um. So yeah. So I'll I'll go first. Um. I'll start it. Uh. Mine might actually not be that long, but we'll see. I always feel like I say that and then an hour goes by <laughs> and I'm still talking. So yeah. Um, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Um, so let's, let's do this. So I'm, I'm going to be talking about the yogurt shop murders. I knew it. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm not excited because it's awful, but at the same time, I love that you picked this one. Yes. Yeah, but just yes. did a happy dance. It was, it was majestic. Absolutely. Take the floor away, Zoe. Okay. So this this might sound like a fun thing because you know yogurt but it's it's tragically not very fun um sadly uh so this is the 1991 austin yogurt shop murders and it was coined the yogurt shop murders because the murders do take place in a frozen yogurt shop um so it is an open homicide case in austin texas currently still all these years later um it is still an open case um, and it occurred on December 6th, uh, 1991. So to set the scene, um, the yogurt shop, uh, which was called I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. Also, the sign is like, I just want to take a minute to say that the sign is like just terrible. <laughs> like, 90s fantastic. 90, super 90s. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was like bubble comic sans. Oh, no. Like I, really. With comic sans just hurts my soul. Well, like not even like you see like Froyo shops now and they have like mm -hmm. little cute designs or they have little cute mascots or whatever. This literally like was just a text bubble letter sign. It was red. It was very plain, and it just said, I can't believe it's yogurt. And I was like, <laughs> all right, graphic design in 1990s, like, let's go. And also, marketing, uh, uh, Butter already did that. Yeah, so, it's totally yeah. ripped so, off the Butter company. Yeah, margarine, um, margarine already did that, so stop. But also, that's, <laughs> I can't believe it's not Butter. Oh, that's true. And this is like, I can't believe it is yogurt, which just sounds uh, weird, because I feel yeah. like I almost kept calling it, I can't believe it's not yogurt. Because that's what we're used to, yeah. Right. But that would be literal ice cream and not frozen yogurt. So. Right. And then it, it literally wouldn't be yogurt. <laughs> exactly. 
so the yogurt shop um, was was robbed and set aflame. So the whole thing up in flames. Um, after and then, and then afterwards, four teenage girls were um, found inside the store having been murdered. So the original investigation spanned over eight years. Um, and as of 2016, the Austin Police Department, uh, their cold case department is still pursuing this case. So again, like the original investigation leading up to like their first arrest was eight years. But obviously, because this crime has not been solved, it is still a cold case. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been like 25 years now. So, or over 25 years, technically. Um, so, let's start with the beginning, really. Um, the victims were 13-year-old Amy Ayers, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, 17-year-old Jennifer Harbinson, and Jennifer's 15-year-old sister, Sarah. So um, Jennifer and Eliza were employees of the store. They were working the evening shift. Uh, Jennifer's sister, Sarah, and her friend Amy had spent the evening at the nearby North Cross Mall and then were planning on having a sleepover later that night at the Harbinson or the Harbison's um, house. So they came to the yogurt shop at around 10 p.m., to help Jennifer close down. And then at 11, when the store closed, they would then catch a ride with her home. Um, shortly before midnight, a patrolling police officer noticed a fire coming from the shop um, and called it in. Of course, like um, the fire department thought it was just a regular fire, that the kitchen had caught on fire, you know, someone left a burner on or whatever. Um, I did find conflicting articles. One said that um, despite the fire being called in, the fire department had not gotten there right away because they went to a different location by accident. Oh, shoot. Um, but I couldn't actually find that confirmed anywhere. Okay. Um, so I don't know if that's true or not. Um, after the fire uh, was put out, that is when the firemen, when going through the building to make sure all the fire was out, uh, discovered the four bodies. So, um, now this is like, you know, f- firemen are not, you know, if they, if they show up to, a, to like an apartment building on fire, like they, they know that they may or may not find people in there if they didn't get anyone, everyone out. But, you know, showing up to a store at midnight after hours or close to midnight after hours, like they don't expect to find anyone inside. So this was very right. like horrific. Um, they said that this case was um, the first time that the f- they actually had like the firemen like hang out afterwards to be like interviewed and like had to give like firsthand accounts because they were the ones who went through the crime scene first. Um, they were the ones who you know could have messed up any evidence or whatever. Um, right. So. Uh, all four girls were discovered naked, bound and gagged with their own clothing. Um, Amy's body, now again, Amy is the youngest, um, was found in the middle of the back room, whereas Jennifer, Sarah, and Eliza were found in the rear of the back room near the storage and shelving unit. Um, Eliza was stacked on top of Sarah, 
with Jennifer close to the side of them. And the bodies had been burned almost beyond recognition, and napkins and other flammable items had been strewn about the room, uh, most likely to help spread the fire. Right. And everything had been doused in an accelerant that was most likely lighter fluid. Amy was the only one who was not, like, burned almost beyond recognition. She actually only had second to third degree burns because she was in a different part of the room where the fire wasn't as bad. Mm-hmm. Um, the autopsy revealed that all of the girls had been shot in the back of the head execution style, and at least two of them had been raped. One was definitive, the others... Um, they couldn't really tell because of how much the fire had damaged their bodies. Um, sadly, that means that the one that was definitive is the youngest, which is just horrific. Yep. Um, Amy was the only one to have been shot twice, most likely due to struggling um, on her own account. So, you know, that could mean that, you know, they don't know if the other girls were killed first and Amy tried escaping or that she heard those girls be murdered and then was struggling. You know, they don't, they don't fully know. Um, two guns had been used to commit the murders, which is what led investigators to believe that there were two, at least two suspects. Yep. And approximately $540 was missing from the store. However, there is another source that says only $14 were missing from the store. And this is like a big discrepancy And it's super problematic because um, this is a key factor in telling whether or not this was meant to be a robbery that had gone wrong or if the money was not the intent and it was just something that they took in like the aftermath of everything to try and like show that it was a robbery. So because obviously, I mean, $540 is still not enough to like warrant murder But it is a substantial amount that would lead investigators to believe that that was, like, the cause of why this happened. Whereas, like, you wouldn't go in there if you were only going to steal $14. Allegedly. Allegedly. So, because of how intense the fire was and all of the amount of water used to extinguish it, Especially due to, and also due to the fact that, you know, they thought they were dealing with just a fire. Mm -hmm. Most of the evidence was destroyed. The official report states that the fire was most likely set along the south wall of the storage room at around 11.42 p.m., which was 39 minutes after Eliza rang up a no sale at the register. Um... Now, they say that Eliza is the one who rang up the no-sale because she is the one who had been on register all night. Right. So, obviously, they don't know if it was Eliza, but, like, it's safe to assume that it was Eliza since she was the one on register. And it's certainly the last recorded activity um, that was there. Right. Um, So, obviously, that was at... She would have rang that up at, like, 11.03 or something, um, which is three minutes after the store is technically closed. Um, Jennifer, uh, wore a wristwatch all the time, um, and, uh, she was wearing it that night, and it had stopped at 11.48 p.m., which is when the fire was at its most intense burst of heat, which is then what stopped her watch. Um, which is just, like, a haunting detail that is, like, messed up. 
Um, the last real sale of the night was at 10.42 p.m., 18 minutes before closing. The couple ordering said they noticed two other customers inside sitting at the last booth on the left closest to the register. Um, they gave like a vague description of what these potentially male suspects look like. Um, and then they don't really know who these people are. They didn't really get a good look at them. They just noticed that there were two most likely men sitting at this booth closest to the register on the left. Um, the couple then left at 1047 and said that due to Jennifer, um, or they didn't say this, but investigators claim that due to Jennifer uh, having been cleaning up while the couple was in there, the couple talked about how Jennifer was stacking chairs on tables, wiping things down, mm-hmm. you know, doing all the stuff that you do when you close. Um, that after the couple left, it is likely that Jennifer had then locked the front door and flipped the close sign over so that no more customers could enter as they began to clean up, which is, which is a common thing that yep. people would do in shops. Um, even if there were customers inside, they would still lock the door because you could still exit. You right. just couldn't enter. And right. so um, Jennifer might have done this to just stop customers from coming in at the last minute. Um, the people inside would have still been able to leave. Um, and this was also noted because when the, I think it was the firefighters or the police officer tried to enter the front door of the yogurt shop, despite the flames being evident at the back, um, they tried to open up the front door. They could not because it was locked. Okay. So it was locked when officers got there, which means that at some point someone had to have locked the front door. Um, so it's likely that Jennifer was doing that as she was cleaning up. Um, the scene the next day would be able to determine where they left off in their cleaning routine. Um, so Jennifer had begun to empty the yogurt containers. Um, she was in the middle of, of doing that. Uh, and Eliza had begun to wipe down the serving area and the rag that she was using was actually left on the serving area, almost as if she had been like mid-wipe and then something happened mm-hmm. where she was interrupted. So a witness claimed to have seen the lights still on in the shop five to ten minutes past closing, but did okay. not stop to figure out why. They were late and they just kept driving. Um, they did think it was weird, though, because typically the shop would be closed by then. Um, defense attorney Carlos Garcia theorized, um, that the killers were already in the shop when it was closed and that they were waiting for the girls to clean up and at some point pulled out a gun and made Eliza ring the no sale to then empty the register. Um, which is plausible seeing as how there were two customers left in the store. They had locked the doors. If the doors were locked, no other people could have gotten in kind of thing. Um, Other people claim that Eliza could have rung the no sale to check the till or just because she was closing out. It doesn't necessarily mean that that is when, you know, they were being robbed. Um, I guess the drawer was like slightly busted, so they could have broken into the register. She didn't have to do the no sale to like get Mm. the money out. Um, So there's different theories as to were they being robbed was this the time they were being robbed? Um, 
or was this just like a coincidence that she just rung a no sale to check the amount or open up the register? Um, neither can be proven. So given the small amount of money involved, it's hard to say whether this was a robbery gone wrong. Um, and especially with the level of violence involved, it's hard to say that this was just a robbery. Agreed. Um, so the two remaining customers seen by multiple witnesses throughout the night have never been identified. Um, and there were multiple customers throughout that night. So I guess these two people had been there for a while, um, at least until um, Sarah and Amy had gotten there. Mm -hmm. So because throughout the night, um, multiple people had come into the shop and had said that they saw these two people in this booth on the left, just drinking soda, chilling. Um, <clears throat> at the time of the murders, American serial killer Kenneth Allen McDuff had been in the area and been labeled a possible suspect. Uh, McDuff is actually a um, serial killer that was responsible for the 1966 murder of 16-year-old Edna Sullivan, her boyfriend's 17-year-old Robert, Robert Brand, and his cousin, 15-year-old Mark Dunham, uh, while they were visiting from California. Uh, McDuff is also responsible for many other murders, which is why he's coined a serial killer. Um, and he committed these murders while he was in and out of prison, which, um, Jeez. I'm sorry, but Aggravates if he's killing people, yeah. maybe he should stay in prison is my thought, but you know, it's fine. Um, but this murder of Edna Sullivan is actually coined like the broomstick murders. Mm -hmm. If you guys know what it is. So, um, that's that, that guy. Um, and so they thought of him as a possible suspect suspect due to the fact that his M.O. is typically young girls who are bound, assaulted, and then he kills them. Um, the, the murder of Robert Brand and Mark Dunham was actually just because he was targeting Sullivan, mm -hmm. and they just happened to be with her. So he abducted all three of them, killed the guys, and then went after Sullivan. Horrible, horrible person. Yep. Um, but don't worry, he's dead. Um, 1998. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, McDuff, on the day of his execution, actually confessed to the yogurt shop murders. Um, however, none of the evidence or DNA linked to McDuff, so they thought that he was just um, confessing to try and buy more time, uh, which clearly did not work. Um, and police have admitted that over 50 people have confessed to this crime, all of which have either been proven to not be true or have just no evidence or DNA linked to them. So let's get into who done it, um, which they don't know, but they thought they knew. So eight days after the murders, uh, a tip was called in for Maurice Pierce, a 16-year-old who had been seen at the North Cross Mall that night with a 22 caliber handgun, which is the mm. same caliber handgun uh, that was used on the girls. So he said that he had 
loaned his gun to a friend and that's Let why guess, he had never it. got it back well he did get it back that they found oh, it on okay. him but oh, he said fair. that he didn't have it that night hmm. until like later when that's it convenient. had been given back to him mm-hmm. um however ballistics showed that his gun did not match the murder weapon uh despite being the same caliber and like mcduff no other evidence could be linked and uh, when they interviewed Pierce, they also interviewed the three other guys that Pierce had been hanging out with that night. <clears throat> now, that is relevant because years go by uh, with no arrests until 1999 okay. when four teens are taken into custody. Mm. And these are the four teens that were questioned the same night eight days after the murders, the three with Maurice Pierce. Mm -hmm. So Maurice Pierce, Forrest Welburn, Robert Springsteen, and Michael Scott were brought into custody. Um, Scott and Springsteen are said to have confessed to the murders, which is what led the police to believing they had the right guys Mm -hmm. Um, and that it was like a group effort. All four of them did it. Um, DNA had been found on one of the girls, Amy. They did get DNA from her, um, and they were trying to match it to people. It was tested against 70 people, um, including the four teens, or I guess they weren't really teens anymore, but, um, right. those teens f- then, but teens older then, now. but older now, um, yep. the DNA had been tested on them, but no match was found. Um, charges against Welburn and Pierce were dropped when the jury failed to indict them. Uh, so they essentially were just let go. There was no evidence for them. Um, it was all hearsay. And Scott and Springsteen went to trial because of their confessions. Um, shaky. Yeah, shaky. Very shaky. Do, uh, from their, from their trial, they were actually both found guilty. And I think, yeah, somehow they were both found guilty. I, I'm assuming it was because of their confessions um entirely due to the fact that there was no evidence um that was you know pinning this to them uh one was given 99 years in prison and the other was given the death sentence okay so they went in not messing around they they went hard um however not long after it was suggested that they were innocent uh because of the fact that there was no physical evidence and um there was a uh, suspicion that both their confessions were coerced. Uh, so then 15 years after the killings, both convictions were overturned on the basis of an unfair trial. In 2008, defense lawyers requested that the DNA be tested on Scott in Springsteen and no match was found. And so then in 2009, all charges were dismissed and the two guys were then released. Wow. Um, so, yikes. <laughs> Major yikes. Major yikes. Um, basically, like, there, there was a lot going on. Uh, there was, you know, a photo had been released where a gun was held to one of their heads during the confession. Um, 
one of the other investigators had been found to have coerced other confessions from other people. So clearly he could have coerced a confession out of them. Uh. Um, There was just, there was a lot of mess in trying to, and I think it's, I think it's from the desperation to try and find who did this. I mean, it's a horrific, horrific crime um, that no one would have seen coming. Excuse me. Um, and so, you know, they were really desperate to find their, their killer. Um, so a lot of law enforcement still believe that these four were responsible and the case remains open and unsolved until they can find out who the DNA that they got off Amy belongs to. Um... The only possible answer is those two unidentified male customers who were in the shop upon closing. And that's super creepy that they were there for such a long time. Right. Like, if if multiple sets of customers... And listen, you don't spend a whole lot of time in a yogurt shop, um, you know, unless you're just hanging out with friends. So there could have been just people going in and out. But, um, you know, and I also wonder the fact that they had two extra friends show up uh, also threw a wrench in what they were going to do. Right, um, yeah. So. so, I mean, and that's if you think it was those four people, unless you mm-hmm. think it was just those two guys, and then who are those two guys? Um, I do remember reading um, that uh, Daryl, one of the customers that had come in that night, said mm-hmm. that while they were ordering their yogurt, um, one of the guys from the booth had gotten up and gone into the back. And he thought that that was weird. That's Because weird. why are you going into the back of the yogurt shop? That's really weird. And he had asked Eliza about it. And Eliza said, oh, it's okay. He's using the bathroom. Um, now, he thought this was weird because, like, Eliza had apparently claimed that, like, they don't have a bathroom open to the public. So the guy, Why would he be allowed to do it. The guy, yeah. she was just letting. He had to go. She was just letting him use the employee bathroom. No well, they biggie. Could be scoping it out. Well, that's the thing. Um, yeah. Also, Daryl says that um, that's not true. That the yogurt shop did have public bathrooms. Oh. So he didn't understand why she said that would allow them to go to the back and why yeah. she would allow. But again, that didn't really get looked into much. Um, hmm. it was just, cause again, they don't know who that guy was. Right. So they can't figure out why he went into the back room. They only know that Eliza let a customer go into the back mm-hmm. to use the bathroom. Hmm. Um, and it had been one of the guys at that booth. So clearly that gives him a chance to scope out the back. Maybe try and look, for, you know, if this is a robbery, maybe try and look for the money. Um, look for where the safe is. Right. Um, I believe there was like a, I couldn't find it anywhere on the internet, but there are um, three books about this whole case. Um, the one that I read is Who Killed These Girls? Cold Case, The Yogurt Shop Murders. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by Beverly Lowry. Um, that's the book that I read, um, and it goes through so much detail um, possibilities, theories. The entire trials that went down, all of wow. the all of the details of the trials that went down, 
um, all the different rabbit holes that you could possibly. I mean, like this this book is thick, um, <laughs> and it's got a lot of really good information and a lot of good theories. Um, and I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, you got a few books. Well, there there are other two books. There's another book um, about um, that one's called. Um, do 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 murdered innocence and then there's a fiction book called see how small by scott blackwood which is um and it's like about the aftermath of the murders and Mm -hmm. um it's like it's it's like a weird take on it like it's basically like it's uh it's i don't know like it is about the yogurt shop murders but it like clearly takes its own story because it is still a fiction book so it's not right. really about the yogurt shop murders it's like about the ghosts of the girls or something like that or like the aftermath of it's only sounds and very, only three of them get murdered and sounds like very lovely bones yeah like they definitely took some liberties with it yeah. um but anyway the, the book that i read with that. i know right i don't know <laughs> i don't um, know about that the book that i read had like a lot of details and went into a lot of the details of all of this stuff and um you know talked about like whose car was in front what all of the witnesses mm. um noticed um the two guys that were there like who were they interacting with were they interacting with anybody um what did they look like uh it just went into more and more detail about like literally every possible thing about this case um so those that's, but, like, no one knows who those guys are. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, oh, that's what I was getting at. Um, the I remember reading something in the book about the safe not having been touched. Oh, yeah. So further further potential evidence that this wasn't robbery. Right. Uh, robbery wasn't the main motive. Right. And so, like... Um, or maybe it was and they fucked up. And yeah, there was something did. about there was something about the safe, and I can't totally remember what it was. I could not find it on the internet at all. Any article about it never talked about the safe, never only mentioned the money that was stolen out of the register. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do distinctively remember the book. I couldn't find it because, like, again, this book is like thick. Yeah. Um, I couldn't find exactly where they talked about it, but I do remember saying something about whether the safe was touched or not or having it not been touched, and that was weird because mm-hmm. if it was a robbery, why didn't they um, get the money out of the safe? But then also the safe is in... If you look at the map of the yogurt shop, the safe is right next to where... The safe is in a room right next to where the bodies had been. Mm-hmm. So you could assume that the girls were taken in the back to the safe mm-hmm. and that maybe they refused to um maybe they refused to open the safe and that's why they died. Right. Um, or they didn't know. It, or they didn't know, know the combination. Yeah. And, that sounds like a that sounds like the robbers a, a got head frustrated. Of a shop. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like a head of a shop, not necessarily people that work there. That's right. That well, also, they're 17-year-old girls. I mean, like, yeah. they might, you know, it's the 90s, so they might have been given, you know, responsibility to run Above, yeah. the shop on their own and close the shop. Maybe they were, you know, maybe the shop owner allowed them to do that, but maybe they didn't trust them enough to give them the combination. 
Exactly. So there's theories about that as well, you know, because if they're cleaning, and obviously, like, the the sister and Amy would have been hanging out up front. They would have been Mm -hmm. eating yogurt or whatever and hanging out up front while while Jen and Eliza cleaned up. Um, Jen and Eliza wouldn't have been cleaning up out back. They would have just been, unless they needed supplies, they would have just been up front. Right. doing all of the things to close the shop up front. So why are they in the back? And, you know, it it was really... There was also something about, like, um, Amy's body was the one that seemed moved. Mm-hmm. So they don't know if she was trying to escape, and that's also why she was apart from the other girls. Because, again, three of them are in the back. Why is Amy by herself? Right. So was she dragged into the other room to be assaulted? Was she trying to escape? You know, what led her to be in a different part of the store than the rest of the girls? And also why were the girls, ki- like, in the back, killed in the back, instead of up front where they would have naturally been? Right. So, again, the safe could be one of those reasons. Um you know, they could have brought them into the back to try and get money out of the safe as well if it was a robbery. Um, or they could have brought them in the back so that no one saw with the lights on. No one saw what they what were doing with the girls. Yeah. Yeah. So and could go either way. And this is only like a 30 to 45 minute window. Yeah. That they have because um, what the time on her watch was, what, 1149? So the fire would have had to have been raging for some time. Um, up until that point. Um, so, the, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, um, now I'm just being, I'm <laughs> just throwing out conjecture. In no, there. yeah, I love but. it. No, let's go. <laughs> um, the fire was most likely set at 1142. Oh, okay. Um, so the fire less, would have yeah. been at its most intense heat just five minutes later. Wow. Which means that really there was a lot of accelerant. Of accelerant. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of accelerant. Um, however the no sale was at 11.03 so at least 30 minutes 39 minutes yeah there was 39 minutes that this had that's a lot to get done in 39 minutes for two people right but if they have a gun they can pretty much coerce anybody to do anything if they're scared i mean if they're binding them yeah i'm you're dealing with two 17 year olds a 15 year old and a 13 year old um, if you're two hefty dudes, you could probably get it done. Um, but again, it's 39 minutes that are unaccounted for. Yep. Um, that no one knows, you know, what, what went down, um, and, and all that and what led to what, um, in 2017, a new team of investigators were set to review the evidence and continue the case. And um, Detective Jay Swan learned that there was an array of online databases containing Ooh. DNA profiles. Ooh. Um, so uh, he found this intriguing, and it held profiles of male-only YSTR samples. Okay. Um, which is uh, a similar sample to the one the investigators had uh, gotten from the yogurt shop. Mm-hmm. And the National Center for Forensic Science at the University of Central Florida operates the U.S. YSTR database. 
and it contains 29,000 samples for population research. Wow. Um, its website says that the samples are from the government, commercial, and academic resources throughout the United States, and that all forensic lab laboratories and institutions are invited to contribute to this. Um, it also contains a disclaimer saying that it does not function as a law enforcement database and cannot be used to identify a particular individual whose sample is in that database. Um, all donors are anonymous and cannot be traced back to specific individuals. However, Swan was hoping that um, by identifying a profile, you could minimize the pool of potential suspects and also was hoping that through these databases, they could basically do what they did for the um, Golden State Killer and yeah. find familial DNA to then find family members or relatives to the potential perpetrator in the yogurt shop murders. Or even just like a description or just like... Or just something. Something. Base, yeah, baseline some sort characteristics. Of lead. Just something. Yeah. Yep. Some sort of profile. They, yep. they, he knew that they weren't going to be able to find an individual. Yeah, But he wanted to use it to find at least a profile of the person. Okay, I like that. Um, especially because when he entered the profile or... Um, he did get a hit on a profile when he entered it in a private Virginia lab. Um, so he knew that there was a profile that they could get. He knew it wasn't going to be an individual, but he knew that it, there was a profile that he could get. However, they can't get it. Damn it. Because the FBI won't release it. No. So. <laughs> Why? <laughs> The FBI refuses to release the profile, claiming that the profile is not a specific person and, there would, and therefore would not be helpful to their investigation. Then why not release it? <laughs> and um, the FBI acknowledged that it had provided anonymous male profiles to the Florida University for the study. So they supplied profiles. Oh, no. So the FBI supplied male profiles to this Florida University and... Those profiles exist, um, and, 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 like, but they're not suitable for matching an individual. So the FBI assisted in this research, mm -hmm. um, but they refused to, to, like, help get these profiles released. So the, the Florida University will not do it, um, and the FBI will not do it either. <laughs> And that was in an article in February of 2020. So it's been three years. The Austin Police Department has been fighting the FBI for the last three years to release these profiles so that they could potentially get a lead on their DNA sample for these murders. Listen, I, I get that they're busy. I understand the invasion of privacy. I understand <laughs> the, the anonymity. I understand scientific studies. But if you have something that can potentially close a case, don't there isn't there just some semblance of obligation that there and, and, and I get that there were like a million disclosures before this, but we did it with the Golden State Killer. Why the fuck can't we do it here? I don't know. Why? I don't know. 
I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling at the ether. I know. There's like some back. like, there's some like, I didn't totally understand it because I don't totally understand all those policies. You're not a forensic expert. It's okay. Exactly. But um, yeah. for some reason, like, it's just not, like, they're not willing to release that information um, because it's private, because it's for research, uh, because it's not going to give them their suspect. Um, they don't want to invade people's privacy. They don't want to, you know, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of, to me, it's a bunch of bullshit, but yeah. um, it's just a bunch of stuff. Or, and if they can't, and if they can't release something in, I don't know, there, there should be some type of informational loophole or something that they can, mm-hmm. they can dish out yeah. um, in order to have that. And, and I'm going to be real sad if it's like someone that they have in witness protection now because he was just a fuckwit that messed up his entire life. But at the same time, like, ugh, that's, that's aggravating. But yeah. cool that there's an update, but aggravating. Right? And, I mean, like, I'm happy that they're still um, investigating it, it and yeah. looking into it and that it's just not sitting in a box somewhere. Right. Um, but like at the so same many time, cases do. Like so many cases. Um, but it is, you know, it is, it, the whole thing is just such a tragedy mm-hmm. and just, like, heartbreaking that, like, this horrible shit happened and they can't figure out who did it and i also can't imagine the guilt that some of those firefighters must have had to oh my god yeah because they were putting out the fire the fire did destroy evidence but also water water destroys evidence (laughs) yeah you know that washes everything away that takes away fingerprints you know there's there's a lot of things that sometimes can survive fire and there's not very much there's not very many things that can survive water. also i think the horrifying realization when they did the walkthrough um i remember reading that um excuse me i remember reading that while they were doing the walkthrough they noticed there is no kitchen there's no burner there's no oven there's no stovetop it has to be like when they walked through they were like it's a yogurt shop Mm -hmm. there is no kitchen right and that's when it started to come together like what the what happened and then a firefighter said that they saw a foot and then it just went downhill from there. So it was just, it was like, it's it's heartbreaking for them to think that they're just coming to fight a fire. And then it kind of starts, like the puzzle pieces start to fall into place where it's like, well, the, there's no stove. Like there's no, yeah. there's nothing that could have been left on to cause a fire. So why is there a fire? And then you look and you see a body. And then you find three more. And then you find three more. Uh. So, um, from the book that I read, um, Garcia, the uh, defense attorney, had stated, um, like, that the entire thing was evil. uh, And to quote it, it says, Yogurt shop was an act of pure evil, and when evil is let loose, it spreads, it doesn't stop. So, honestly, if you want to learn, like, more, super more in detail, like, super, super everything, like, quotes, statements, theories, I mean, this is that book, the book. Is that the book that has the pictures? Yes. The pictures yes. on the front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Um, I've seen the crime scene pictures, and it is not for the faint of heart. 
This one, this one doesn't have um, crime scene photos in it. Yeah. It just has the pictures of the four girls on the front. Oh. Um, so it doesn't actually have any, like, um, actual photos in the book. <clears throat> um, but, I mean, it goes over... There's, like, four, like, chapter chunks. Mm-hmm. But each chapter chunk has, like, I don't know, like, ten to twenty chapters, like, mini-chapter sub-chapters. Pieces pieces yep. yeah kind of like acts with different chapters in it right like it talks about the crime um going over all of the girls all of their back history um the crime scene the task force the first week um the eight years until the case was quote-unquote solved yep um the aftermath in the city uh then it goes on to talk about the each each boy that was um or that was brought into custody their backstories what led the police to them um the entire like pursuit of them uh then it goes into the court and the fucking judge the attorneys it goes into the fire it goes into jury selection the trials wow. it goes wow. into the science behind all of their investigation um and then at the very end it goes into all the unanswered questions so it talks about you know the theories what quote really happened Mm -hmm. um it talks about the storage room more in depth uh it talks about all the information that came out in 2015 and 2016 when um scott and springfield were or springsteen sorry were um released so um or after they were released obviously they were released in uh, 2009 i think i said so what happened in 2015 and 2016 leading up to the new task force um so the book goes into an intense amount of details um i really recommend it again this is why this case is one that i just always keep diving back into anytime i talk about true crime um, you know, like, anytime I talk about true crime, I either talk about the Yogurt Shop murders, Adnan Saeed, because yep. of the serial podcast, or, um, the Lululemon murders, because that one just yeah. kind of makes me laugh. Yeah. Not in, like, a fun way, but I just think it's really, if you guys don't know what the Lululemon murders are, I personally think it is, like, a fucked up hilarity that someone would murder someone over $400 leggings. Yep. Like, it's not funny that someone died, obviously. It's never funny that someone died. The, it's especially never funny. Right. It's especially never funny that someone got murdered. Like, I'm not putting comedy onto that. Nope. But the reason that this girl <laughs> murdered someone was over leggings and that to me just like I my brain can't comprehend that and I just end up like laughing because I just I don't it's $400 leggings also leggings to be $400 is just ridiculous just ridiculous in itself so it's like a whole story that's like ridiculous um 
But yeah, so those are typically the three that I always talk about when I bring up true crime or when I talk about my passions towards true crime. Um, but yeah, the Yogurt Shop Murders is definitely one that sticks with me uh, for sure. And I that's the one that I'm waiting for an answer. Um, that's the one that like if they find who did it, I will I will be like the one clicking my mouse, refresh, refresh, refresh to get all the information. <laughs> Because, like, yeah. You'll be at the trial. I'll be at the trial yes. with a sign. Exactly. That like, says. I know you did it. Throw <laughs> yeah. your ass in jail. Exactly. <laughs> well, now we have our title. So <laughs> that's the one. Throw your ass in jail. Throw your ass in jail. That's my sign. That's what my sign will say. That's that's what it will be. That's what (laughs) it will be. (laughs) (laughs) Oh Oh. gosh, that's such a pivotal one. That's such a pivotal case too. And also, can we also just make a special note to not have seventeen-year-olds close stores anymore? I don't care where you live. I don't care how safe your town is. I don't care how responsible they are. It just takes one fucker to mess Mm -hmm. everything up. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure that doesn't happen nearly as much anymore. But open and closing, please have an adult around. Please have somebody who is <laughs> right? over the age of at least 21. Um, and and there's, some, there's some security safeguards in place. Please, yeah. please no more 17-year-olds closing yogurt shops. Or closing yogurt shops at 11 p.m. Yeah. Who the fuck? No, nobody needs to do that. Nobody needs to do that. Froyo isn't that good. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Those, those Whoa, are my fighting words. The truth comes out. Froyo isn't that Fro-yo good. Froyo isn't that good. It's okay. I have a complicated relationship with Harry, so it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> That's the most controversial thing to come out of this podcast. Our podcast, it, our podcast today, Froyo isn't that good. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Love your podcast. Can't believe she said Froyo's not that good. Uh, so, well, you can't believe it's not butter either, so. <laughs> sorry. Oh my goodness. That was good. Yay. Yeah. Well, mine's uh intense if we're ready to switch gears. Um so listen, I know a lot of murders over over the 32 years of of me being alive and I would say healthily at least 20 of those being obsessed uh with crime in some way shape or form. Um I have definitely I definitely need to rack my brain uh, to find one that had mystery, that had, you know, no resolution, that was just completely mind-boggling and sort of uh, one that I've definitely come across um, before. And I actually uh, came across and remembered this one because I took a sophomore year in high school uh, trip to Italy um, one year, and also Italy is top of mind uh, given the current events that are happening right now. So that's also probably one reason why it popped into my brain um and uh when i was in florence um we had a real interesting tour guide uh when i went over there he tried to once uh convince my entire school group um because i went with my school um what tried to convince our school group that fettuccine alfredo was not an italian invention it was actually made by fat americans um (laughs) Even though there is a famous restaurant called Fettuccine Alfredo. Um, 
and we went to it. So whatever, it's fine. Um, so he was interesting. But the one thing that did stick with me that was factual and wasn't a load of crap because we were with a bunch of homeschooled people as well and they sat locked up everything that he said because they're dumb. Anyway, it's fine. Um, I shouldn't say dumb, sheltered. So so we went uh we went to the Duomo, uh, which is if you don't know the Duomo, it's this big old building. Uh it's absolutely beautiful. It has uh, an incredible uh, uh, circular citadel uh, top. There's a huge clock tower that you can climb. You can see most of the city of Florence. Um, it's it's absolutely breathtaking. It's amazing. Um, and as we came down, we took a picture um, next to the side, and there was an old Italian man there. And he came up and was like, Americans? Americans? And we're just like, yeah, yeah, we're American. We're American. And he's just like, make sure Il Monstro doesn't get you. <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> And everybody else looked at looked at me because I said what with a giant grin on my face. <laughs> um, <laughs> when everybody else is just like, "Who is this creepy old man?" Everyone else is horrified, and you're like, "Wait, I'm sorry. Please I tell me know everything." More. Yes, I need to know more. Um, so uh, I didn't research when I was there, but I remember coming back and and reading about things. And oh God, what year is this? This is two thousand and four. 2004, 2003, 2004. Um, and uh, at that time, there had been absolutely no movement on this case since 1996. Um, now, I know what you're saying. <clears throat> that wasn't that long ago. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk, we're gonna talk through uh, murders that happened as far back as 1968. Um, so this is, this is a long-standing 40-year-old investigation as well as almost 30 years 30 years of murders oh my god by potentially the same person who is known as il monstro di Firenze, also known as the monster of florence this is amazing buckle in okay <laughs> so wait so, hold on is this like yes. like a legit like person or this is, is this a, like a murdering urban legend creature nope this is a legit person okay and there i do have a list of suspects they just have I a do. ridiculous name. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, the well, the, the El Monstro was given a moniker for them because of how vicious these murders are. Okay, so it's kind of like Jack the Ripper. It, it is. It is Jack the Ripper esque. It is Zodiac Killer esque. Um, it yes. is the Green River Killer before he was found. Um, it is. It is. I mean, he the type of these types of murders, the pattern. Um, and I, I will preface, I do go into sexual assault, body mutilation, as well as potential necrophilia. Um, so, uh, just so you know, <laughs> buckle up. There have been trials for this, multiple trials. Trials. There have been two men successfully sent to prison who have been let out. There, uh, there, uh, the Monster of Florence cases are still considered cold cases. There is zero resolution in any of them, and there are sixteen murders. Oh my god. There are sixteen murders. That are so eerily similar, it's almost, it's, it's, there, 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 there was a point to when I was doing my research where I was like, this can't be real. This is so real. This is on the Florence, Visit Florence website as like a macabre, come visit us because this happened here. Come visit us because we have so many unsolved murders. Basically. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in researching this story, I saw the whole case depicted in a bunch of different ways one of which was chronologically from the first murder in 1968, and the other one actually started with the murder uh, that happened in 1981 and then went back to the other ones. 
um because initially they had not found um some of the uh some of the patterns and uh there were people who did successfully go to prison for potentially doing these who were eventually found innocent so um if you also don't want to read through the copious amounts of shit that i read through <laughs> and would rather um watch some really cool things there's actually a pretty concise documentary from the bbc um i can actually find you a link i found it through reddit um, and then also this really great channel that I'm going to be watching more stuff on on YouTube called The Dark Chronicles. I'm sorry, there's no the, it's just called Dark Chronicles. Uh, they had a full 45-minute episode about all of this, uh, documenting it chronologically, and she has a beautiful Irish accent. So if you want to also listen to that, I kind of want to be friends with her now because she's amazing. Um, definitely, definitely recommend that. Uh, other sources were The Atlantic, TheFlorenceWebGuide.com, uh, and then obviously Wikipedia, and then the four books that have been written by this who are also the four people who are the main conjecturers of the investigation so the reporters are actually the ones who are giving the police ideas oh my this God. is how crazy this shit goes okay <laughs> amazing also we can probably put out a tweet from the herlock files twitter that will um link you guys to the documentary um, yeah. the youtube and Totes. the books we'll do Totes. we'll do both the yoga shop books and the um and the florence books i like it thread time i love it i love it okay so all right let's dive into murder number one the first murders took place on august 21st 1968 uh antonio lobianco oh I also did a good job, and by good job, I mean I fucked myself over again because not only did Colot have Russian names, I now have an entire story of, of uh, Italian names, both of places and people that I have to say. Yay! Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Okay, so uh, Antonio Lobianco, who was a mason worker at the age of 29, and then also Barbara Lochi, who is 32 and is a homemaker, uh, had just left the movies with Barbara's six-year-old son, Natalino. At the time, uh, Lochi, uh, uh, who is uh, Barbara, I, I should have just said Barbara, Barbara uh, was having an affair with Bianco and her husband, Stefano Mele, was at home. Barbara, a native of Sardinia, um, was famous in the town because of her multiple love affairs uh, that she has had over the course of her entire life. Um, and she received the nickname Ape Regina, which means Queen Bee. It is very well known throughout the entire town, if not the region, that she has had a string of affairs, even having ones with an entire family of brothers known as the Vinci's. The Vinci's are, let's say, petty criminals at the least. Um, just putting that earworm in now. Um, so the couple drove around. This is Barbara and Antonio. They drove around and approached a secluded spot near the woods in Signa, which is a small town west of Florence. Uh, while the six-year-old Natalino uh, was asleep in the back seat, the super responsible adults decided that they were going to get busy with one another and have sex in the front seat. Oh, my God. Yep. Uh, as this was happening, this is alleged, uh, as this was happening, a man approached the car and aimed a 22 uh, caliber Beretta pistol at the couple, shooting into the car eight times. The six-year-old boy was unharmed and was apparently able to flee the scene. This is where the first two discrepancies come up. First case of how the six-year-old was able to flee the scene. I'll get into the, the murders in a hot second. But uh, this is where the case already gets a little hazy. Uh, investigators ended up uh, having two separate accounts from the child. Um, and they were unable to properly ascertain, ascertain which one was the truth because he changed his story. 
Uh, one story was the child woke up and finding both his, both his mother and uh, his uncle dead and fled in fright. By 2 a.m., he arrived at a house that was nearly two kilometers away, knocked on the door and asked for help. Questioned by the police, uh, who were very unbelieving of the story, um, it turned out the child had absolutely little to no dirt on his bare feet. He had no shoes on. Um, he did not lose his shoes, and the people that he was staying with did not have his shoes. So clearly, <clears throat> he never had his shoes to begin with, and they actually found his shoes in the car. So how does a child run two kilometers, get no dirt on their feet, any cuts, any bruises, nothing, um, and end up there? This is how they find, they, this is how they say this, there's no way this is a true story. His initial account that he said to a rookie detective um, was that he was grabbed and taken uh, by the killer and put into a car and then driven to another house and left on the front porch. Uh, this seems more plausible because obviously there was no dirt on his feet uh, and, his, and um, his feet were bare. However, he never retold this initial story and instead stuck to what he said that he was alone, that he ran from shock, and he ran to the next to the next house, never interacting with the killer or any other people until he was at the house. Which is probably what he was told to say. <clears throat> Regardless, uh, there was no real description. Sorry, I gave I gave I gave Zoe a, a knowing look. I didn't audibly say it, but I gave, I gave Zoe a knowing. I got your look. <laughs> yes. So regardless, there was no real description of the suspect obtained by the child either, so the police had very little little to go on. Back to the crime scene. The Carabinieri, and I wanted to say that because that is what the police force is called, and that's so dope. The Carabinieri uh, concluded that Barbara was shot four times uh, in the shoulder, the chest, and the lower back area near her spine, and Antonio was shot primarily in his chest. Uh, the killer had fired from the driver's side, then circled the car to finish Barbara off. Barbara's gold necklace was stolen, and there were no fingerprints, no footprints, uh, and nothing left at the scene from the killer. Barbara's husband, uh, Stefan, uh, Stefano Mele, immediately became the, mess the main suspect. Uh, he, in turn, said, why are you looking at me? You should look at the slew of all of her other lovers that were probably jilted that she was, again, having another affair. This dude was so over it, I can't even tell you. Um, the police did perform um, a paraffin glove test, which is how you test for, for um, gunshot residue, and confirmed that Stefano had fired a gun recently. I will say, paraffin also means that you can also touch a gun that has been fired recently, and you can still have gunshot residue on you. Um, so, just putting that one out there. Um, after this revelation, he confessed and told the police that he was indeed present at the crime scene, but it was actually one of the Vinci brothers, Salvatore, one of his wife's previous lovers and one of the brothers in the petty criminal ring, um, was the trigger man who killed the two victims in the car. Stefano then took the gun, which is why it transferred, the, the gunshot residue transferred to his hand, and he, and he discarded it in a ditch, but the weapon was never recovered. This is incredibly important that the weapon was never recovered. Salvatore was brought to trial um, with the confession from Mele um, uh, of, uh, of I said I said of his co-conspirator in my in my notes and that flipped me up so that's fine of his co-conspirator Mele. Um, interestingly enough, he was not actually brought to trial for the murder of Barbara and Antonio. Um, no, this piece of work was actually brought to trial for the murder of his own wife in 1961, uh, oh. whose name whose name was Barbarina Vinci. Um, she had died in a suspicious fire and that was labeled a suicide. Um, after multiple documented disputes uh, and pushes from the family, um, 
uh, it was reinvestigated. Uh, it turned out that Barbarina did have an affair and also became pregnant. And the son that they had, whose name was Antonio, um, could not, or um, uh, was, uh, was also named after the person she had an affair with. I will remind you that the murder, the murdered uh, man in this situation was Antonio Lo Bianco. Dun, right. dun, dun. Yes, and uh, it's unconfirmed if it was the same Antonio, but kind of a weird coincidence, don't you think? I just, you know, it's just one of those things. So Salvatore, we don't not... know, but it's weird that it happened, right? <laughs> if I had, I, if I had a penny for every time. You know, someone killed my lover and his name was in. No, anyway, I'm not even going down that route. Anyway, I was doing a TikTok bit, but it's fine. No, so, I know. I know. It's the, it's yep. the nickel one. It's weird that it happened twice, right? I had so. a nickel. I have two nickels, <laughs> which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it happened twice. I shouldn't laugh at this. People are dead. But at the same time, this 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 We're, this we're not laughing case. at the dead people. We're laughing no. at the nickel TikTok. This entire case is absolutely The outrageous. nickel TikTok is really funny. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, okay, so Salvatore was not found guilty of this, however, and Stefano quickly withdrew his statement saying that that um, that uh, Salvatore was there. Quickly withdrew it after the trial didn't work. Um, he did come back saying he was now the sole proprietor and perpetrator of the murders and said, I killed my wife and her lover because I was tired of being continually humiliated. Definitely not a reason to kill someone, but Jesus. Okay. Uh, uh, Stefano Mele was found guilty and was given 16 years in prison. I'm going to say that again. He was found guilty of murdering two people and potentially almost killing his son and was found guilty for 16 years for murder, double murder, and potentially harming his son. Doesn't make sense. Uh, with so special... many years. Yes. They did give him <laughs> they did give him a special consideration because of his infirmity of mind. They did say that he was in, in in the throes of anger and passion. It would be somewhat likened to uh I mean the well the not that it wouldn't be the same as second degree murder because it wouldn't be. This would actually be likened to manslaughter, uh mm -hmm. given the amount of time that he was given in our in our uh, judicial system. Like a crime of passion. Um, so Stefano then recanted again uh, the same confession that sent him to prison, saying that he only shot Barbara after she was already dead. So this dude has changed his story four times at this point. Four times he has changed his story. Um, and uh, he did confirm that he was at the crime scene, but didn't shoot the bullets that actually killed Antonio and Barbara. Doesn't make any sense. Um, and... So the, the jury took pity on him because he had um, a resentencing hearing and just reduced his um, sentence by two more years. This is 1968, I will remind you. Um, so it is very important to note that the police, after all of this, uh, started doubting his involvement at all. He was changing his story too, story too much. And also Stefano Mele never mentioned his son in any of his confessions what he did with him, where he was, what his child was doing during all of this mayhem. If he was actually there, wouldn't he know what was happening to his son? You would think. So many think the cops had detained an innocent man and were forcing him to say the wrong things. 
This cloud of doubt would prove to be true and also deadly for many residents and in and around Florence. Uh, six years into his prison sentence after the initial murders of the lovers, a similar scene arose on September 15, 1974. Pasquale Gentilcore, who was a barman and uh, also at age 19, and Stefania Pettini, who was an accountant and also age 18, were teenage sweethearts. They parked in a known lover's lane uh, to um, in the, they, par they parked in a known lover's lane area um, and had a romantic rendezvous in the country in, the, in a country lane near Borgo San Lorenzo. They were uh, not far away from a notorious club, uh, a disco called Teen Club, where they were supposed to spend the evening with some friends. Some hours before the murder, uh, Patini uh, said to one of those friends that they were going to hang out with um, that a weird man had approached her and terrified her. Uh, days before that, Patini also recalled a strange man had followed and bothered the two of them during a driving lesson a few days before driving erratically around them. Uh, sometime during the night of September 14th, the teenagers were approached, um, their car was approached by an assailant, and uh, their bodies were found the next day shot and stabbed. Uh, Pasquale was found shot five times in the car, leaning in and over the driver's side door. Stefania suffered absolutely gr uh, gruesome and horrific, and horrific wounds. Um, she was shot three times anti-mortem. She was shot up to five times post-mortem. And she was also stabbed up to 97 times with a knife. Whoa. Yep. Her body was taken out of the car and posed by the trunk of the car on the ground. And her corpse was also violated with a grapevine stalk inserted into her vagina. With this display, the medical examiner also conducted an examination and confirmed that she was indeed sexually assaulted, most likely post-mortem. There was also a conclusion that the killer tried to rape Stefania while she was still alive, but could not perform and instead violated her body in the manner that he chose. Stefania's jewelry, a watch, and a silver necklace were also missing. Um, so, True. as you can see, there were some consistencies. Obviously, the, um, the horrificness that Stefania went through was not the same as Barbara Locci. However, uh, there was missing jewelry. Um, it was two lovers that were killed. They were, it was a moonless night. It was a Saturday. Um, and uh, a there was nobody around to find it in part. a car on a lover's lane. Yeah. Yep. So there were several men who were suspected of this particular murder, but none of them ended up being pinned for the murders. There was a peeping Tom. There was an over-religious zealot that was like in everybody's business. Um, and uh, there was a delivery driver. Um, all, all three men were, were uh, questioned um, and none of them were pinned to anything and nobody knew anything. Now, I'm sure you are noticing the missing jewelry and the fact that there's two lovers found in their car, very similar to the 1968 scene, uh, just the same as the 1968 stream, uh, um, uh, um, scene. There, were, there was absolutely no money stolen. Um, and then all of the man's effects were still there. So his watch was still there. His ring was still there. There was nothing stolen off of the man. These murders at the time were not linked to the previous one. However, I will note that the same weapon, the 22 caliber Beretta pistol, was used. The police did eventually link the two cases together by examining the bullets and the bullet casings, which were a match for all four, of all four murders. Uh, however, uh, this case at the time went cold and was labeled unsolved without the bullets being matched. Um, it would also be labeled the first of the Il Monstro murders because of the absolute horrific details um, that both couples had went through, specifically Stefania. 
Uh, years of silence followed the murder. Um, still not linked yet. Uh, uh, still not linked yet until seven more years later when the assailant would strike again. Okay. So the monster of Florence would show their true colors in years to come and also escalate. On to murder number three. This is on June 6th in, 19, in uh, 1981. Giovanni Foggi and also Carmela Denuncio uh, left the house of Carmela's parents after dinner with family. The two were engaged and decided to sneak off for some alone time near um, Scandici, uh, which is another um, uh, border town around Florence. On uh, June 7th, in, in the early morning, an off-duty patrolman was walking through the woods with his son uh, when they came across the abandoned car with the two bodies. Much like the previous murder, the man, Giovanni, uh, was in the driver's side seat, slumped over, having been shot three times. He also had signs of being stabbed in his neck and chest. Um, Carmelo's body uh, was out of the car, just like Stefania's, placed and posed near the car trunk. She was shot multiple times and also stabbed. Um, additionally, the killer cut out her entire pubic area with a notched knife. The medical examiner mentioned that this had to be done by someone who was skilled in the trade and that could do this uh, professionally, such as a taxidermist, a doctor, a gynecologist, or a hunter. The lovers were also killed with the exact same gun as the 22 caliber pistol. Um, and... Um, uh, the Carabinieri then linked all three, all three crimes for the first time uh, after this latest case, confirming to the public that they indeed have a serial killer in and around Florence. Three more suspects came up as potential murderers, but as uh, the previous murder, uh, but as with the previous murder, none of them panned out. There was one person who was actually detained at the time as a potential suspect, a young voyeur uh, no, and, para and paramedic known as Enzo, Enzo Spalletti, uh, went around speaking about the murder before the corpses had been discovered. Uh, he went to, he spent three months in jail charged with the murder before the perpetrator exonerated him by killing again. Mm. So this was, so this is what they started to find really weird, um, about, uh, Il Monstro was that he seemed to be quite enraged that somebody else, uh, was given credit for what he had done. Right. So, uh, Stefano Baldi, uh, age 26 and Susanna Combi. Uh, age 24, were engaged and due to be married. The couple drove their car and parked near a local park in the vicinity of Calanzano, which is another suburb of Florence. The murder scene uh, discovered by townsfolk was nearly identical to the ones described previously. Man shot multiple times. However, his body was outside of the car this time. The woman's body was also outside the car. She was shot and stabbed. And additionally, just like the murder beforehand with Carmela, her pubic area was uh, was mutilated and removed. Um, cartridges for the 22 caliber Beretta were found and bullets matching the murder weapon uh, and the other deaths were also recovered. They did, for the first time ever, find two footprints of rather unusual uh, boots that did not belong to the victims or the policemen or any of the local townsfolk that had discovered the scene. They were hunting in military type boots, uh, European size 44, um, it has been the first evidence collected since the bullets in the casings. They had found nothing else beforehand. That's before wild. This. Isn't it? An anonymous person phoned Camby's mother. That's, that's, um, uh, sorry, that's, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the woman's. So that's Susanna Camby's mother. Telephoned the mother the morning after to talk about her daughter with her. 
So someone anonymously called and said, I need to talk to you about your daughter. You will also notice that telephones are going to start having a play in this too, and it gets real creepy. A few days before the homicide, Susanna told her mother that there was somebody tormenting her and even chasing her by car, just like Stefania. Um, it is uh, now more likely that the women are being stalked, followed, and hunted based on the killer's preferences, and they seem to know when the couple is alone and isolated. They don't seem to be going for the woman. They always seem to go for um, the couple when they are alone and always targeting them as a couple and not just as a person. This answers how um, his MO is so perfect instead of being random chance or happenstance. There were witnesses, too, of a red Alfa Romeo driving erratically from the direction of where the bodies were found. A sketch was produced and distributed uh, to the media um, to the media of the man who was driving the car, a shorter balding man with brown-black hair on the sides, aged with some wrinkles or by the sun, a prominent brow, large eyebrows, and a very stern, pursed face. The cops wanted to note that it seemed the meticulous man was screwing up and making mistakes. The crime happened on a busier Thursday night instead of a weekend. This also happened three months after his hunting season, which was the summer, and this was well into the autumn uh, time when this was happening. Um, the prior crimes had been committed on moonless nights um, where it was well-planned and well-chosen. Meanwhile, this one seemed to happen on a more well-lit light, um, confirming the theory that the murderer was anxious to act out to prove that the police had the wrong person in custody. Uh, because of this, Enzo Spalletti was released from custody, um, and, and the killer definitely said loud and clear, you've got the wrong guy. Right. Um, yeah. So, great, we have a furious murderer. These are these are my editorials. I said, great, we have a furious murderer who is stalking people, mutilating women, killing couples, and now apparently is an egotistical narcissist asshole. Just great. <laughs> so, that was my editorial uh, editorializing. Um, okay, so this was the fourth double homicide that the monster had officially um, started. Uh, that that um, since the uh, this, since the monster had officially started, and it was beginning to scare locals. With eight people dead, the murderer's antics only became increasingly more bizarre and frequent. On June nineteenth, nineteen eighty-two, uh, Paolo Mignardi and also an, uh, Antonella uh, Migliorini. I knew I was going to mess up on that one, but that's okay. Um, a mechanic and a dressmaker, respectively, uh, were engaged and due to be married, were found shot just after having sex in, um, in uh, uh, Paolo's um, car on a provincial road in uh, Montesperatoli. This guy's really against car sex. Yes. <laughs> like... the monster sh yeah, 100%. <laughs> uh, the monster shot um, Antonella in the head in the backseat, uh, splayed out with injuries to her ankle, face, and chest. Uh, this time, the killer did not have the time to mutilate any female victim, the female victim as the road was relatively busy, and several passing by uh, drivers testified they saw the car parked at the side of the road with its interior light turned on. Uh, Mianardi, although seriously injured with bullet wounds, was still alive when he was found in the front seat of the car. Oh my god. Police and, mm -hmm. Police and ambulances were called immediately, but unfortunately, Mianardi died some hours later at the hospital, not recovering consciousness enough to speak uh, to authorities about what he saw more than a few words. Those words have never been released publicly. Based on the evidence... Uh, Maynardi probably heard or saw the killer approaching and tried to drive away, but he lost control of the car um, after being shot and got stuck in a ditch uh, on the other side of the road. Um, another reconstruction of the event suggests that after shooting the couple, the killer drove Maynardi's car for a few meters to hide the vehicle better so he could do his work. 
um, on the corpses uh, and try to move it closer into a woodland area nearby. Unfortunately, he lost, con or fortunately, I should say, un or fortunately, um, he lost control of the car and abandoned it in the ditch before he was able to do any of his other work. Um, the team got the closest they would ever get to catching the brazen man, a surefire way to guarantee that he would be more careful next time. Um, appreciative of the couple taking some, uh, some of different precautions that the police were actually trying to say, you know, don't go out on moonless nights. Try to just stay home. Why aren't you fucking in your bed? Just stuff like that. Just trying, <laughs> trying so hard to get them Have off the fucking streets. <laughs> yes. Stop having sex in public places. Um, the police started announcing that people had to be more careful now as the killer seems um, to be trying to get his marks even with their added measures of safety. Uh, following Minardi's death at the hospital, there was a report that one of the Red Cross workers received a call from an anonymous man asking to be told what Minardi said on his deathbed. She thought this was a reporter. She didn't really care. She said, fuck off. The same Red Cross worker got another phone call while at another location on vacation in a place undisclosed to most of her family. Um, many, many towns over, not anyway connected to where she was supposed to be, didn't tell her coworkers where she was going to be, nothing. I will remind you, this is a time before cell phone eras. This is, this is in 1982, which means this person had to track down a landline to try to find where this person is. That's fucking creepy. That's creepy. That's fucking creepy. Asked her the same thing. Said, I need to know what May and Artie said. She said, I don't, I don't know what he said because I wasn't in the room. She never got a call again. However, using this, the prosecutor at the time, uh, Silva Della Monica, released uh, the alleged final words of Paolo. And I'm using, I'm using my air quotes because they are likely not the actual last words of him. To the newspaper hoping to get a rise out, of, rise out of the killer so he would mess up again and get caught. But it didn't work, and in fact, it taunted the killer to be more cruel. Cool. Yep. Twelve days By after cool, the murder. I mean not cool. Not even, not even in the least. That's not uh, a backfired plan that you want. No. Not like, no. You. No. It's no. Not. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I remind you, we have sixteen murders, and we're through ten of them. So yeah. So twelve days after the murder, uh, there was a letter sent to the police with a clipping of the first murder, the one of Barbara and Antonio in 1968. By this point, the police had not gone all the way back to that, and this is when they actually started connecting the dots. So because of this, because of this, they started looking into um, the case uh, evidence, as it were. Not only were the bullet casings and the bullets confirmed a match. Um, from the 1968 murder to also the 1974 murder, as well as the 1981 murder. However, they were serially from the exact same ammo box. The serial numbers that are on casings and that are on there, they were from the exact same ammo box. And this is an ammo box that was bought before 1965. So this is somebody who should who would have had the uh, same Beretta, because the same markings happen uh, when it, for those of you who don't know ballistics, the same markings will happen from the same gun, no matter what, as long as it's not tampered with. Um, that is how you're able to match uh, bullets that are fired from different guns. Um, so as, uh, so as we're, so as you're doing that, um, the bullet casings and everything not only matched each other, but also matched from the same ammo box, which is absolutely, absolutely bananas. Um, they had also now realized that they had imprisoned the wrong man, Stefano Mele, 
uh, for 14 years, and he was finally released from prison. The police started looking more closely into all the members of the Sardini clan who may have taken part in the 1968 killings, as well as many uh, as any people close to them, including all of the Vinci brothers, once again. Remembering them, uh, do you remember them? I hope you remember them, because they are the ones who were initially looked at besides Melee for the 1968 murders. They started looking into all three of the, the Vinci brothers. Uh, Salvatore uh, and Francesco were the ones who were starting to, uh, to uh, leap out at them as potential higher suspects. So we're back on Salvatore, uh, the guy who murdered his wife. <laughs> We've come full uh, and was found And was found not guilty. Um, the one who uh, Stefano Melee had said was at the 1968 murder, um, but then recanted, but then said he didn't do it, but then said he did do it, but whatever. Um, so shortly after Mianardi, um, shortly after the Mianardi killings, um, uh, remember the prosecutor Silva Della Monica had uh, tried to use the last words uh, strategy. Uh, Francesco Vinci's car was found in the south of Tuscany, hidden in the woods. Huh. Huh. It's a weird place to leave your car. Why would you, why would you leave your car if you had nothing to do with that? Was it a red Alfa Romero? Um, which is what was potentially one of the cars that was running one of the women off the road? Huh, it was. Anyway, uh, Francesco uh, Vinci was taken into custody on suspicion of being the monster of Florence. However, as with the last time, there was a murder suspect that was detained. Another murder happened. The next set of murders was on September 9th, 1983. Uh, and at first glance, it was not connected to, to Il Monstro until later. Wilhelm Frederick Horstmeier and Jens Rusch uh, were two German tourists traveling to Italy, traveling in Italy to celebrate the important scholarship Horstmeier had just won. Both men were found shot to death in their Volkswagen Samba bus, um, and the van was riddled with bullets. Same gun, same bullets found at the previous murder scenes. Uh, there were no goods stolen. There was a suspiciously placed and torn gay pornography magazine, and it is believed that they could have been shacking up. Authorities also confirmed that uh, there was evidence that the two travelers were also lovers. I was going uh, to ask if they were having sex in the car. <laughs> 100%. Rush's long blonde hair and his small build could have deceived the killer into thinking he was female. He was not. And because there was no female between these two murderers, as expected, both men were not mutilated nor stabbed. Due to this happening in the 1980s, uh, the satanic panic was alive in hell, alive and well. <laughs> I said alive in hell. <laughs> it was. Um, <laughs> it was. Um, religious consultants had come forward during this, um, during the 1982, or in between the 1982 and 1983 murders, describing that the deaths could be linked to the practices of a cult. Um, my theory is maybe, absolutely maybe, uh, but ultimately I think the killer wanted trophies or something else to show his revenge towards women. No uh, Satan devil worship as a distraction. Yeah. As someone who like is fascinated by cults and reads yep. a lot of things about cults, this does not seem very cult-like. No. I mean, there's too much, there, there's too much serial killer, uh, like tendencies involved. Yes. And, yes. and far, uh, there's not enough Satanism. <laughs> like, no, there's not which, enough. Which sounds really weird to say. There's just, there's not enough Satan in this. But it's so true. Um, but it's so true. And, but there's also not enough, like, like, typical cult murders are more like, even when they have nothing to do with Satan, they're somehow ritualistic. Yeah. Whereas none of these crimes seem very ritualistic. And, and he's been changing, uh, uh, his MO, and he's been shifting how he mutilates the women, 
uh, some of them are stabbed 97 times and some of them aren't. So um, it's kind of it's kind of bananas. So uh, the guy had already gotten away with no fingerprints, barely a boot print, no car descriptions, except for the most common car at the time in Italy, which was a red Alfa Romero. Um, every murder came with its own suspect baggage and he was able to dodge um, ever being a suspect. We hope. Just think, um, I just think he was being extra careful and potentially more cruel towards women who were absolutely his intended targets. He was stalking them. He was keeping trophies of jewelry and maybe the sick fuck escalated to keeping body parts instead. Like they said, it could have been a taxidermist or a hunter. So I think he was unfortunately keeping women's vaginas because he thought that that was a cool thing to do. And escalation is pretty common in serial killings that happen over generations. Absolutely. Or not generations, Absolutely. but many years. And, and this has been this has been twenty almost twenty years at this point. This has been right. twenty five years of this guy running rampant. Right. So, so escalation is like because escalation is typically how a serial killer becomes a serial killer. Yep. So it's pretty common for ser- like if they if they are able to continue this for many years to escalate their antics because right. they often get bored or they lose that sense of thrill that they had on their first kill, so they try to they recreate that by... they almost kind of want to get caught. They, yeah, they kind of want to get caught, but... They want to be stopped. Or, they, or not, even, not even that they want to be caught, but they want to try and push the boundaries of being caught. Like, I wasn't being caught when I was giving... When, when there was a lot of stuff, but I'm definitely not going to be caught, like, now, if that makes any sense, or, like like... How, how far can I push it to not be caught? How far can I go to, how far can I take this without being, you know, discovered or what have you? And uh, I only ever entertained the cult idea um, was because maybe the same weapon was used between different people. And maybe they used that in order to complete whatever mission, whatever shit they needed to do, whatever right they thought that they had. Um, And that was really the only thing, because it's so weird that the same gun has been used from 1968 until now. Like, it's, it's, that, that, that's the weirdest, most, most, most um, baffling part to all these people. Because even with some of the sketches that they get from uh, witnesses, people who either saw people driving um people who uh had close encounters with creepy dudes uh whatever they had they don't look the same the same person who's been accredited for these crimes doesn't look the same none of them do there's three different sketches of them and they don't look alike at all so um and and i'll i'll kind of get into that with with some of the the suspects so um uh, another year went by, no new clues, no suspects. Um, they still, they have their, they have their, their usual suspects that they want to keep going back to, but they just cannot link them to anything. Uh, these are the Vinci brothers um, and some of their other co- uh, cohorts. So unfortunately, a double homicide number six happens. So this is, now we're up to twelve. Uh, July on July 29th, nineteen eighty four. Claudio uh, Stefanini, uh, who's a law student, and then Pia Gilda uh, Rontini, who was a barmaid and a cheerleader. Were lovers and lovers and sweethearts in the budding stages of their relationship. The pair were found shot uh, to death and stabbed in uh, Stefasini's car uh, that was parked in a woodland area, um, and both suffered uh, anti and postmortem injuries ranging from gunshot wounds, stab wounds, uh, and slicing. The slicing was new. There were there were large open wounds that were found on them. Uh, the killer removed uh, uh, Pia's pubic area and also her left breast. Uh, this was again new in escalation. 
She was posed just the same as the others. She was killed with a gunshot uh, to the head and was also stabbed up to 100 times. So now we're back to taking the time and having the time to be able to mutilate a corpse up to that certain point. Um, with uh, further proof that the killer was escalating in his demonic worshipping, air quotes, the cops noticed the escalation and violence towards the women's body. Uh, there were reports of a strange man that were following the couple from an ice cream parlor hours before the murder had happened. That was where one of the sketches also came up. Um, a close friend of, um, of Pia uh, recalled that she confided uh, that she had been bothered by an unpleasant man while working at the bar. Uncharacteristically, the assassin left two clues at this crime scene. Finally, we have a handprint. We have a handprint that was found on the top of the car. They are now officially confirming that the killer was right-handed and most likely held the gun in his right hand as he as he shot and then may have had to steady himself um, using his left hand uh, on the top of the car. There were also knee marks on the side of the car confirming that the height of the killer was 1.8 to 1.85 meters, which I think uh, roughly comes out to like... Oh, boy. I don't remember the conversion that came out of this one. I think they said, like, 6'2 to 6'5. Um, I'm sorry. No, that's wrong. Uh, it was 5'9 uh, to 6'2 is what it was. Which is, he like, every dude ever. You think? Yet again, the <laughs> like, monster of Wait Florence... a minute. Like, 5'9 is not that tall. But 5'9 to 6'2. Yep. That could be anybody. The average height of, of an, an adult. Of all male. <laughs> of all mm -hmm. men. Uh, the Florence, um, the monster of Florence had struck again while police were holding the suspect in custody. Uh, so this time, they uh, went after Giovanni Mele, who was Stefano Mele's brother. So we're going all the way back to the first guy. And then uh, Piero uh, Musciarni, uh, who was Stefano Mele's brother-in-law, who were brought in, as well as Salvatore Vinci was brought in again. So all three of these were finally being, all three of these men were again being, um, being questioned. This is Salvatore Vinci's third time being questioned in relation to these murders. Jesus. <laughs> uh-huh. And they can't pin anything on him. So out of Leeds again, and back to the drawing board again, with no concrete evidence to pin it on any of these potential suspects, again, Il Monstro commits their final double murder. On September 7th, uh, 7th and potentially on the 8th, depending on when they were found in 1985, Jean-Michel um, Jean and Nadine Murot um, were lovers who were at a getaway uh, traveling through um, Italy from France. They were, they were from Andicourt. Uh, instead of a car, the bodies were found in a tent uh, nearby in a woodland campground in San Cassiano. I tried not to say that as, as Midwestern as I could. Um, Nadine was shot to death and stabbed while sleeping. Jean-Michel was killed a short distance away from the tent while trying to escape. He was a world-class sprinter and he ran a good distance away but was inevitably shot and caught. Uh, he was stabbed and shot multiple times where he lay. Nadine's corpse was mutilated, removing the left breast and the pubic region, just like um, the previous murderer uh, before that. Because the killer had murdered two traveling foreigners, there was not yet a missing persons report, so they, the, the bodies remained unidentified for some time. The killer sent a taunting note to state prosecutor Silva de la Monica, uh, the same one who had allegedly leaked the final words of Paulo years before, um, the, survivor, um, the survivor who then died. 
um, at the hospital after the attack. The letter was taunting authorities that a murder had taken place and challenging local authorities to find the victim. The killer was a little late in his taunt since the murder scene was already found before the letter was fully delivered to the prosecutor. Um, a person picking mushrooms in the area discovered the bodies a few hours before the letter arrived at Monica's desk. The letter was sent with a piece of Nadine's breast to confirm that it was him. Um, this also forced the prosecutor to resign. She said, no more, I'm done. Yeah, not surprised. Yeah, and the killer said the same thing. 16. 16 murders were committed by Il Monstro. There were eight incidences of double homicides, and then he vanished. He was never heard from again. There were uh, no particular leads um, as things happened. Um, and as I stated previously, there were a lot of suspects, but these murders over the year, um, uh, of these murders over the years, so they had to go through and revisit each murder uh, the suspect uh, had with a new lens one by one. Ultimately, after tirelessly following up on leads, it took eight more years since 1985, so this is in 19, uh, this is in, what is this, 1993, 94? Um, 94. Yes. Um, for them to approach the public uh, with a case of who the murderer could be. In a bombshell, that isn't that surprising, Stefano Nele, the first guy, the guy who's been out of prison uh, since he was exonerated for not being the killer of his wife and lover, um, confessed before his death in 1995 that he was blackmailed by Salvatore Vinci, the psycho fucko who was the first ever suspect in this case, who went to trial and was not indicted for any of these murders, nor killing his wife in 1961. Jesus. But wait. Uh-huh. But wait. What if I told you that they eventually looked into the whole family and the cohorts and brought all of them to trial again in the 1990s? Salvatore Vinci, Giovanni Vinci, and Francesco Vinci were all the were were all uh, eventually um, either uh, grilled to all shit, um, or uh, were asked to come in, or were um, trying to be indicted for these murders, and things didn't happen. <laughs> Salvatore Vinci went missing after 1995 after retreating to Spain. His last public sighting ever was in 2002. He remains at large. Giovanni Vinci, who was accused of raping his sister, was also a suspect, a younger sibling of Salvatore. There is very little to no information on him. Not even the police have enough to go on where he is. Cool. Francesco Vinci, the youngest of the siblings, the one who, uh, who they found his car uh, over in the woodlands, um, he was a known hunter and probably had the boots, probably had the notched knife. Uh, and probably had the skills in order to stalk and hunt people, especially in woodland areas, was killed in 1993 and was found in a burning car. So, all three of those guys are off the board. Um, but I feel like they're not. They're not. <laughs> so, so here's so here's the weird thing. It seems like all of these characters have the potential to have committed this. So my conjecture that I said beforehand that it seems really weird that the same gun is being used over many years is what if they are using the same gun, but it's not the same person. Right. Well, so if there's three different sketches, there are three different sketches. Could there be, could it be all three of them? Exactly. But we don't know because they're all dead or missing. Well, so yeah. So yay. here's. So here's who the police finally landed on um, as as a um, 
as the most likely suspect. This is this is the one that went the farthest in terms of prosecution. Okay. Uh, so Pietro uh, Pacchiani uh, is labeled as the most likely suspect. Um, some of the authors, the four authors that I had talked about that, that have extensively looked at this, um, Italian authorities who have looked at this are, are on this guy. The guy that I believe doesn't think it's these th this guy, but, you know, I think it's the brothers, but that's just me. Uh, okay, so Pietro uh, Piccani was an alcoholic. He had nicknames of Blaze and Fire Eater because he was known to go into absolute rages. Uh, he used to be a carnival worker. Uh, he was a hunter uh, by sport. And he was allegedly a member of a cult. Um, he had unusually strong sexual desires that were marked by both uh, his wife um, and uh, and uh, former girlfriends and unfortunately his daughters. Um, there was a past case um, where, <laughs> and please listen to these details, he attacked his girlfriend and killed the lover she rendezvoused with who were on a country lane in a woodland area oh. in a car. My God. He dragged him out and beat the man to death with a rock. He then raped his girlfriend, murdered her, and also, or didn't murder her. He then raped his girlfriend, brutally raped and beat her, and allegedly performed acts of necrophilia on the lover's body. Real weird. Um, he also went to prison from 1974 to 1981, and also from 1985 to 1991, um, and he was free during all the times that the murders had happened, and each time he was sent to jail for beating his, well, the first time he was sent to jail for beating his wife, and the second time he was sent to jail was because, uh, was for raping both of his daughters. Lovely. He's a real piece of shit. Yeah. Yeah, so Pietro was, I, I will also reiterate that he spent minimal amount of time in jail for both of those. Um, which is so also he, fucked up. Which is super fucked up. Just, like, the... Yeah. Pietro was tried and convicted for the Il Monstro murders, only 14 of them, because there are people who are convinced that the 1968 murders were an outlier and were actually committed by Salvatore Vinci and Stefano Mele. The, the guy just can't get out of it. He just can't. <laughs> he just can't. He's too sus. Yes. So here are the problems. Here are the problems, and this is why he was eventually released. There were a lot of questions, however, of Pietro, um, because uh, the later murders in 1985, um, they weren't sure his physical abilities to commit the murder were there. The fact that Jean-Michel was a track star and Pietro was 58 and recovering from heart surgery, um, having undergone multiple bypass surgeries in the past, um, it's one thing to sneak up to a car and shoot someone. It's another one to chase down an escaping man and shoot him. Um, he also has scoliosis, angina, pulmonary issues, and diabetes. The guy was not, not in ideal health whatsoever. And this was the crux of the defense in saying there's no way he could have killed these people because look at how basically fat and ugly and disgusting he is. There's no way he could do this with his health. Right. But yeah. if he had to put his hand on top of a car and put his knees on a car to stable himself, 
uh-huh. because a dude's an old man and uh-huh. can't stand up to shoot a gun. <laughs> that also maybe could be. Although I so, personally also still think it's the brothers, but like I mean, just you know, being devil's advocate. Yep. So here's the other thing. He's five two. Oh, oh. He's tiny. He's tiny. He, he has full Napoleon complex. Oh no. And the last thing. Out of the three sketches that are there, two of them are bald. He's not bald Hmm. or balding in any way, shape, or form. There is a third sketch that doesn't have a man that's balding, but it doesn't look like him whatsoever. Also, I mean, granted, like, we were given a lot of heights. He missed that by by a long time. By quite a bit. By quite a bit. Um, (laughs) However, there was a bullet casing that was found in Pietro's vegetable garden that matched the rest of the murders. So they did find a 22 caliber bullet that was fired from a gun, from likely the same gun, had the same markings on it, in his vegetable garden. His defense said, that had to be planted. There's no way that would be there. I don't, I don't really have an argument because O.J. Simpson. <laughs> um, so that's, that's all I, I can, yeah. Anyway, uh, it's about the blood splatter and the socks um thing when uh nicole's blood was found in a pair of socks but it was found on both sides of the socks through and through and there's no way someone could be wearing that if it's found in the exact same spot through and through through through, on a pair of socks ankle would be in the way yes so there you go um so um (laughs) so pietro um during this time uh had also uh supposedly had helpers so they're thinking that Pietro may have committed some of these murders, maybe some of the earlier ones, and may have had accomplices that did stuff because he was an alleged he was in an alleged occult. So um, alleged occult, not occult, alleged occult. There we go. Um, so there was Mario Vanni, Giancarlo Lotti, and Francesco Narducci. Um, Mario uh, Vanni uh, was convicted but died out of prison after being released for medical reasons after only serving four years. He died in 2009. All these people were convicted of these murders, um, but a lot of them were kind of like, eh, maybe they did it. Um, Giancarlo uh, Lotti was sentenced 30 years. Um, he was known as the village idiot. He confessed to killing the German tourists only. He uh, said he had also witnessed uh, Pietro doing um, doing uh, uh, some of these acts, but he was also homeless and may have fibbed in order to get a roof over his head. He did not complete his term and also died in 2002 under suspicious circumstances. Francesco Narducci, an outlier in this case, was a wealthy, good-looking, and had a stable career. Unfortunately, uh, while finger-pointed uh, by the other three, so Pietro, Giancarlo, and Mario, as an and part of the cult, Francesco was already dead. Uh, he died months after the last murder in 1985, found drowned in a lake that was ruled accidental. And in a twist, it turns out, when they tried to dig him up for the autopsy, that the body exhumed was not him. Oh my god. The body that was put in the plot with his name on it was not him. It was not him. Yes, it is likely that he is still dead because his body was identified by his family. Um, at the time of his at the time of his death, but the body that was interred was not his. So did they know something? Did they have to get rid of something? So who knows? So during his during uh, Pietro's appeal of his conviction, he brought all of this up, caused a shit ton of doubt, and uh, they actually overturned the conviction and he was allowed to go home. While he was home, he shut out the world. 
and he boarded up his windows every like there was no movement, nothing that was from the house whatsoever he seemed to be scared of something the cops go to check out on him one day and they found pietro dead of a supposed heart attack after a medical examination they found that he had been pumped full of an anti-asthma medicine but Ironically, asthma was the one illness this dude didn't have. <laughs> so he was pumped through with a bunch of medicine that counteracted his breathing and probably induced the heart attack, and right. therefore it was ruled a homicide in 1998. Jesus Christ. So here we are. This is it. That's the last known potential person who is alive, could have been found, was prosecuted, for the Il Monstro murders in Florence. In 2017, there was another person who was labeled as a potential. Uh, they reopened the case, linking the eight double murders to, they. so now they're saying all, all 16. Now they're saying all 16, not the 14. They're saying the murders uh, to a strategy of tension I don't know what that means. I tried to figure it out. I think it's a phrase in Italian, and then it's being it's being butchered, uh, butchered, and I'm not I'm not fully understanding it. And have a new 86 year old sus suspect, Giampiero uh, Vigilante. Um. So Ser he, seriously, yes, yes. His name is Giampo Vigilante. Yes, not with okay. an E, with an I at the end. Okay. Um. So uh, they're saying that he is definitely, most likely, an associate. He may have been a part um, of this with the canny, um, and it, there's just there, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of hubbub about it. But there's no way that they have moved very much further in this. I've only found two articles that have this, and they're both from sources I don't know how reputable they are because right. they're in Italian. Right. Um. So, um. Essentially. Um, after this clusterfuck uh, of a witch hunt, the FBI stepped in actually in 1999 and concluded that none of these leads or trials or convictions were at all related to the Il Monstro case. So the FBI is now saying the person who did this didn't, the person who you think did this didn't do it at all. And I, or I don't, any I don't... of any of the people that you think did this, not yeah. even the person, just any no. of the groups, because they seem yeah. to be all groups, which I find fascinating. Yes. Because it's like, I just, I, I think it's interesting that, like, it could potentially be a, a group of people. Yes. Yep. Like, based on, you know, the, the different sketches, you know, the fact that, like, it is escalating, but there's some differentiating qualities between the cases. They yep. span over a widespread amount of years. It's years. the same gun. Yep. Like it, the, the same gun baffles me. Yeah, the same gun, and the fact that they were able to track that the gun's ammo came from the same box. Yeah, like that's that's absolutely Weird. bananas. Yeah, yeah. so um, it's just like I don't know. Like I want to think that it's one person, but I also could totally see it being a group of people. So the FBI thinks that it's a solitary killer, is a bachelor with no significant relationships with women at all, um, or perhaps any other people. Period. Um, is likely impotent, uh, is about four, was about 40 years old by the time this happened in 1985, uh, is probably right-handed, duh, more comfortable using a knife than a gun, 
um, is a lust murderer, i.e. killing excites him and has no stable job. Um, uh, and also from the FBI, it has to be a male about 45 uh, years old, probably a manual laborer who gets paid in cash. Uh, and is not actually uh, getting paycheck stubs because they probably don't live in the same area, has average intelligence, um, lives near the place of the first killing, uh, and may use alcohol or drugs to pump himself up for crimes. So that's the profile that they had, and they know that there's um, there's the caliber uh, 22, um, uh, the, the 22 uh, caliber Beretta uh, pistol. Um, there's... Um, yeah, that he would just target the same people each and every time. Um, there, uh, the FBI is also saying that they think that the 1968 murders is not related. They, they think that that's an outlier because there's not enough mutilation to the woman and there's not enough, um, uh, there's not enough uh, potential for it to have the same escalation um, as the other ones. However, however, there are a few criminologists in Italy saying that uh, they disagree with that because they think that this was the catalyst. They think that this was the catalyst for Salvatore um, or whoever they're trying to, to pin this on. Um, just the same as why they think uh, Pietro's um, catalyst was him, you know, raping his girlfriend and killing the lover that she met up with. Gotcha. So, so it's what triggered it. So so whatever triggered it. And it, it went so up they, from they, there. Exactly. So, but yeah, that's the Il Monstro murders. Um in Florence, Italy, because, and uh, again, I just, I, I left details out and tried to be as detailed as I could, but I didn't think that it would be worth it too much to focus on the people that are dead and will never be convicted of this. Right. So. Yeah. But it is yeah. crazy. I don't know. Yeah, I, it's, still, it's, I still want to think that it's those brothers, just because it's like, like, the cult group, a lot mm -hmm. of them were dead. Or, yep. or dying dying or were in jail and then died like but I find it highly suspect that two people are just missing you know yes. what I mean because like it's it's like one thing to be like oh these people did like could have potentially done it and they're dead so like at least they're not going to be able to murder anybody else you know right but like there's two people that we have no answers for nope not even a little so it's like and and running is like the most suspect thing ever. Disappearing oh, yeah. is like the most suspect thing ever. And given and given that the Vinci brothers were, you know, petty shits, um, as it were, uh anyway, they they they're a part of the Sardinian clan. That's that's kind of what they they were part of the underground group. Right. Um with that. So <clears throat> so they, they didn't have uh the most spotless career, but honestly, like nobody was like Everybody's a loser and nobody's a winner in this group. Right. Like, they, they all have the potential to be a part of it, but they also have the potential to just be scumbags in, in a different light, and then we're just getting something pinned on them because they had no other leads. Right. Um, so, but, it, but I mean, it was fascinating to go through this again. Um, you know, what a, what a little Italian man call, call, told me. Um, <laughs> so it was just, you just know. Just sent and, you and, here. And the other thing too is that um, they actually mentioned this on the Florence uh, website was that the the peop the the people who were getting killed later on were actually either visitors to Florence or they were tourists outside of Italy because the rest of the actual residents in Florence were so terrified that nobody was going out during this time. Right, and also so. the second you hear that like someone's murdering people who are having sex and 
their yeah. car probably are gonna not go and have sex in a car just go to a hotel why is this so hard <laughs> just just stop having sex in a fucking car and definitely don't do it with your six-year-old in the back seat jesus christ um so but yeah so the they they have one two three four uh there's four prominent four prominent authors uh and reporters who were on the case either um and then uh who did stuff but the guy that i i sort of follow is mario spezzi mario spezzi um so um he thinks that all of the killers were in the sardinian clan and that it was the vinci brothers right. so that's that, that's who he is a hundred percent on um when it when it comes to that and then like uh nino uh uh flasco uh nino flasco um is the attorney who defended one of the cult members, Mario Vanni, the okay. one that died in 2009. Um, he, um, he believes, um, blah, 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 blah. he believes that it was the Sardinians and Melee. Um, and yeah, so it, he just has a whole bunch of stuff on it. But anyway, um, so yeah, so that's, that's, that's that. That's my unsolved murder that I remember because of current events and on a whim. Damn, that was right. wild. Right? There's just, there's so much more, and I, I don't have the heart to, to keep talking more, because it's, uh, but yeah. It's oh, a and lot. The, FBI, the FBI also thinks that, uh, agrees with me on trophy keeping, but also takes it one step further and says there might be cannibalism. Whoa. Yeah, because they're taking body parts. Yep. Yeah, I and can it, see that. It would be, it would be too, um, it would be too conspicuous if they took, like, an arm. So they went with other stuff that they could pocket and carry. Right. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they're already, you know, if they're already participating in necrophilia, it's not really that. It's just a hop. Far of a jump. Yeah. Yep. It's just a hop, jump, skip to cannibalism. Yep. Because, yep. I mean, from all the things that we've seen with serial killers that participate in cannibalism, necrophilia is usually like hand in hand yeah so i can see that but yeah the trophy thing that's see that's the only thing that like part of me can see why it's a group but part of me thinks it's one person because of the because of the serial killer nature i mean there you would have to there are slight discrepancies between the cases that could Mm -hmm. lead it like i kept thinking copycat killer or like you know, why is this different than that? And so, like, that would only be explained if it was two different people and they're trying to make the the crime look the same, but they, you know, have, like, slight differences. Differences, yep. But, like, if it's one person, like, they know that they're going to cut off this body part and take this trophy because they're, you know, for whatever reason, that's what they do. And that's their thing. And so it just, that makes me think it's one person. Um, and then my pop culture reference is not only all of the books, there's a whole butt ton of books. Um, the 2008 book, The Monster of Florence, A True Story by Douglas Preston and Mario Spezzi, uh, is definitely the one that I would, I would recommend. Um, and then, uh, there were also, um, uh, writing and producing rights that were purchased, uh, for this, um, in terms of screen rights for the books. Uh, it was also uh, turned into uh, an episode of Criminal Minds Beyond Borders, 
uh, where the monster of Florence is identified as a surgeon that was played uh, by I, by Paul Sorvino, uh, who I hope knows who Paul Sorvino is. Interesting. Um, so, yeah. Because if you don't, uh, you need to watch Goodfellas, and it's on Netflix, and you should watch it right now. Okay, great. <laughs> thanks. Okay, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Um, oh, that was wild. That was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I told you it was a, it was a wild one, and and how did I do on time? Did I? Did I you did great. Or... No, oh, we did yes. great. Awesome. Um, I tried to I tried to just keep in the the I almost said juicy bits, and that's the wrong thing to say after this type <laughs> of murder. Um, I tried to keep in the most fascinating details, um, uh, and make sure that I I tried to wrap it up in a tight little bow as much as I could. So. Nah, I think it was great, and I think everyone's. Hopefully enjoyed this episode. Um, We went, we went, we deep dived into true crime. We went in. We did it. Um, That's our makeup for 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 our (laughs) rant about Nancy Drew. Basically. Um, But yeah, so again, we're going to be sharing those documentaries, those videos, as well as the books that we would recommend um, for these cases. If you ever feel like you want to look into... um, into either of these things um again um i think also maybe we can like point people towards um you know anything that helps with unsolved cases because that's the thing like we we decided to go with like mysteries and unsolved crimes there's a Mm -hmm. lot of cold cases in existence there's tons and tons and tons um and you know some of them sit on a shelf and don't get looked at, which is like probably the saddest thing. And others are still being actively investigated in hopes to find um, the perpetrator. So, um, but we just felt like shedding some light on some of the ones that fascinate us the most. Um, and yeah, we just, we hope that you enjoyed the episode. Uh, make sure to follow and subscribe and leave a you know review or a like or any of the things on any of the platforms that you listen to. Make sure to follow Herlock Files on Twitter. And we'll see you next month. Thanks again for listening. Thank you. And stay safe out there too. We yeah, wash your crazy. hands. Wash your hands. Stay inside. Take this shit seriously. Don't be don't be a bed. Uh, be an empty bed in the hospital. Just just. Be, stay safe. Be mindful of that. And stay yeah. safe. Stay safe. Stay sleuthy. Stay safe. And, and we'll see you beauties later. Goodbye. Goodbye.